0: Hi, I'm Damon Fairless, host of Hunting Warhead from CBC Podcasts and the Norwegian newspaper VG. Hunting Warhead follows a global team of police and journalists as they attempt to dismantle a massive network of predators on the dark web. Winner of the grand prize for best investigative reporting at the New York festivals and recommended by The Guardian, Vulture, and The Globe and Mail, you can find Hunting Warhead on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC
1: podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is The Dose. This week, the coronavirus and you. More than 100,000 people in more than 100 countries are infected with the coronavirus or COVID 19. That's according to the World Health Organization. Although the risk in this country remains low, four provinces now have confirmed cases, and this week, Canada had its first death related to COVID 19. There'll be more. So what can you do to protect yourself from this emerging infection, and for that matter, the next one? That's our question this week. And because we have a lot to cover, this episode will be a bit longer than usual. To help me out and to field some of your listener questions, I have one of Canada's top experts with me in the studio. Dr. Alison McGear is both a medical microbiologist and a specialist in infectious diseases. She's Director of Infection Control at Sinai Health System in Toronto, She advises the province of Ontario on emerging infectious diseases and is a member of local, provincial and national pandemic influenza committees. And just last week, we learned that the federal government has awarded her funding to study how the coronavirus spreads. So we're really lucky to have her in the studio. Hi, Alison. Welcome to The Dose. Hi, Brian. We are heading into peak travel time, March break. Many people are concerned about the risk of traveling and also the risk of being told to quarantine when they come home. So first, the risk of traveling in general outside of high-risk areas like China or Italy.
2: There's probably COVID-19 at low levels, essentially everywhere. And you shouldn't... Everywhere? Everywhere. Still, really small numbers in most places. Uh, So... For most places, you shouldn't be worried about traveling because of the infection. Your chances of getting the infection, no matter where you go or what you do, in the next week are going to be low, as you say, as long as we're not talking Iran or South Korea or places that that clearly have sizable outbreaks. Uh, The problem is that we're in this really unstable phase of the pandemic where new cases are appearing Public health officials are uncertain about what the right interventions are to try to slow this down and spread this out so that we can manage health care. And as a consequence, people are making different uh, decisions about when people need to be in isolation and quarantine. And so what you need to be thinking about if you're traveling in the next week is first you check. Health Canada about travel advisories to know where there's lots of activity. After that, you have to think to yourself, if I got there and got quarantined, how bad would that be? If I came back and somebody said, we don't want you at work for 14 days, how bad would that be? And then make your decision on travel based on that.
1: You use the word pandemic, but WHO, World Health Organization doctors have said they're hesitant to use that word because they're concerned that people will hear pandemic and simply give up efforts to contain the coronavirus.
2: I think we have moved beyond containment at a global level. I think we're at that stage of in-between. You know, the, 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 there, there is, of course, no definition of a no clean definition of a pandemic. So to some extent, we can all call it what we'd like um, uh, for the next two or three weeks. Um, uh, until two or three weeks. Two or three weeks until we've decided it's a pandemic. We're holding you to yeah. that. Yeah, you, you may. Yeah. I think the World Health Organization is trying to message that mitigation to spread this out is going to be really helpful. And me saying pandemic and the World Health Organization saying pandemic are two different things, I think is what I'm trying to say. We both know that this is going to be a worldwide outbreak.
1: What does the scientific evidence say about the effectiveness of travel bans?
2: The scientific evidence says that if travel bans are intense enough – they delay things. We're used to thinking about what travel bans do for influenza. And travel bans in influenza buy you a week or maybe 10 days. But influenza's got a much shorter serial interval than this virus. Serial so interval, virus, what does that mean? Serial interval is the time from an infection until the onset of symptoms in the next infection. So you get infected, you expose me, you wait until I get infected, and then I get symptoms. So it's that gap. And for influenza, it's... 36 maybe 48 hours. For this virus it's 7 or 8 days. If you impose really intense travel restrictions as China did, you delay this by 3 or maybe 4 weeks. And you can see that's happened, okay? We around the world, that quarantine in China bought us 3 weeks or a month. That month was very valuable, but at Tremendous cost to the people in quarantine in China, and and that's the hard part, right? How much economic loss and and health losses? Because the economic loss, are you willing to tolerate in order to delay or slow down the spread of this virus?
1: So Italy announced this massive quarantine, and it's going to buy a week or two. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah,
2: that's what I'm saying.
1: And that's it. What about Israel uh, putting into quarantine all visitors for 14 days?
2: You know, again, that will buy Israel some time at cost. One of the challenges of this virus, of course, is all the uncertainties. You don't know. Maybe it's going to buy, maybe Israel will get lucky. Maybe it'll buy Israel a month. Maybe in a month we'll know that some drug works for treatment and things will be better. You know, none of those things are likely, Okay, But in the face of that uncertainty, really hard to know what the right decision
1: is. For travel in general, not to high risk areas like China, Iran or Italy, let's say even flying within Canada. Is that something people should be cautious about?
2: Today, no, we don't at the moment have much. I, I, I don't think we can say none anymore. But we certainly have very little transmission of COVID-19 in Canada now. So there's no reason not to travel today. Unless you
1: happen to be flying with somebody who has COVID.
2: Well, even if you're flying with somebody who has COVID, there's been very little transmission on aircraft, right? This is usually a – requires closer contact. So even if you're flying with somebody with COVID, you'll probably be okay. Maybe not for sure be okay. We haven't yet identified unrecognized chains of transmission in Canada. So the probability that there will be somebody with COVID on the plane is really probably lower than the chance you'll be in a car accident on the way to the airport. Not zero, but – Really low
1: in terms of hotspots. You know, people who I know who work in the system tell me that they're most worried about people arriving to Canada from the United States. That they're really worried about what's going on in the United States right now. That this is becoming a hot spot for COVID nineteen.
2: You know, there's COVID nineteen everywhere. I I agree. I think the fact that there are increasing numbers of cases in the United States uh, poses a significant threat to us. But the truth is that even without what's going on in the United States, it's still gonna come from somewhere. And if you think about it, it only takes one case. That's all that happened in Italy, right? And it's got a reproductive ratio of three. So you think about it, right? It's one case, three cases, nine cases, 81 cases, 240 cases, 750 cases, right? It it doesn't take long with a single case to build a substantial outbreak. Well,
1: exactly. And, and in the United States, the sense I'm getting is that people were arriving – there wasn't a lot of testing. Maybe they didn't have a lot of testing kits, yeah. and boom—you've got New York State declaring an emergency. You've got you've got Washington State declaring uh, declaring an emergency, and this is just happening more and more there.
2: Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I I, I feel like in Toronto, you know, we got really unlucky with SARS. And in some senses at the moment, we've been really lucky, okay? We could have been Northern Italy. It would have been very easy for us to miss something, despite the fact that, you know, people were doing their best not to. Um, Similarly... If that gentleman who arrived in Washington had been managed in Canada, we would not have done anything differently. Um, so there, there is an element of luck. And certainly the Americans were really slow to get testing up and running. Um, I, I have compared to Canada? That, compared to Canada, compared to most of Northern Europe. I fear that there might have been some political decisions about how much testing there was going to be in the United States. Um, like if
1: we don't see it, it's not there?
2: Yeah. Yeah. But I still don't quite understand why the Americans are in more trouble than we are. It it still doesn't make a lot of sense to me.
1: So would you avoid travel to the U.S. right now?
2: No. We're still talking small numbers of cases and attempting to put a travel ban between Canada and the United States. Just not like quarantining Montreal. Okay, it's not going to work.
1: We had a lot of questions about how this virus spreads. What do we know right now about asymptomatic transmission passing on the virus when you don't have symptoms of COVID-19?
2: we have some descriptions of circumstances in which people who are asymptomatic appear to have passed on the virus. We still don't have an answer to a couple of key questions. The first of them is, how many people actually have asymptomatic infections? Because if it's 0.5%, who cares, right? It's not that important. Similarly, the fact that an asymptomatic person has passed on the virus is not the critical issue. The critical issue is whether asymptomatic people fairly routinely pass on the virus, and that we just don't know at the moment. Those are what's called the asymptomatic fraction, the proportion of cases that don't have symptoms, um, and the likelihood that those people transmit are both unknowns at the moment, and they're really important in terms of thinking about how the outbreak is gonna spread.
1: You, you just you said 0.5%, was that just a number you picked out of your head? I,
2: that's the number I picked out of my head. Yes, yeah, I, We have
1: no idea right we, now what we, percentage of people with COVID-19 are asymptomatic. We
2: do not know how many people are asymptomatic or what what people call posy symptomatic right? So you have a little bit of something, but you can't even really decide if you're sick or not. You know, that's a, a little bit that, of a dry that, cough. Technically symptomatic, but you know, most people would think ah, it's not really anything. Um, and those people might be important.
1: We know people are uh, buying various kinds of masks. Should they bother?
2: No. You know, I think we need to, if you are sick, wearing a mask reduces the spread of virus around you. Still not proven to protect other people, but because it's proven to reduce virus around you, it's probably a good idea. If you're not sick, wearing a mask during the course of the day, no evidence that it protects you.
1: I know one of the things you're studying is whether the virus persists on surfaces and in the air around patients. We had a question from a listener about how long COVID-19 lives on surfaces. Um, let me ask, first of all, does it live on surfaces?
2: Uh, almost certainly, it can survive on surfaces for a period of time. Obviously, probably survives better if there's saliva or things around it, you know, so if your child goops on a ball, that's you know, worse than a, a dry surface. It's also, however, probably not particularly infectious from surfaces. You know, you have to, first of all, the viruses don't grow outside of people. So it might survive, but it's not going to be like a bacteria that can increase in concentration on a surface. Uh, And secondly, it's got to get from the surface to your hand. And having a virus on your hand is not dangerous at all. It's only when you put your hand up to your face that you get into trouble. So that's two transfers of virus, surface to hand, hand to face. It's really about the people you touch probably not the things you touch.
1: And that's an important point. And, and, you know, people are now obsessing about how often they touch their face. It's if you touch an infected fingertip, maybe somebody coughed onto your hand, uh, and now you touch your eye or you touch your nose, and that's how the virus gets inside you.
2: That's how the virus gets inside you, yeah.
1: We had one listener who lives in a very small space with her partner, 250 square feet. That's really small. Um, Uh, asked about how they could avoid giving COVID-19 to the other person in a space that small.
2: Yeah, 250 square feet is really small. You know, there is evidence from influenza studies that if you can maintain distances of two meters, that if the sick person wears a mask, that if people wash their hands really carefully, you can reduce your risk. But you in, in that small a space, it would be really hard to do. I think if you're in that small space and you don't want to transmit disease, you're probably better off with one person moving out for a while.
1: Which is obviously going to be expensive for some people, something that they're not going to be able to afford.
2: Yes, which is this is where you hope you have
1: friends. How about the person who's infected wearing a mask under those circumstances? Would that be sufficient in a space that small?
2: The answer is we don't know that. When hmm. we have tried to do those studies with influenza, we've not been able to demonstrate anybody wearing a mask or hand hygiene actually works. There's a there's a suggestion that it might have some impact. So a piece of it depends on whether you want to reduce your risk or whether you wanna make your risk go away completely. Um, in almost any circumstances, slavish adherence to hand hygiene and the sick person wearing a mask is gonna make things better. How much is the open
1: question? You mentioned that the other person. It might be best if for a couple uh, that if 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 the one who's uh, not infected moves out. For how long?
2: Well, that's another interesting question because it's we know now that when you when people have been seriously infected with this virus, that they can remain test positive for a long time. How long? Um, up to three weeks. <clears throat> that doesn't, however, mean that the virus is alive, right? The tests we do for viruses now detect viral RNA. And viral RNA can be there and can stay there for days or weeks. So we need testing that tells us whether whether the virus grows. And we need more testing in people who aren't as sick, because people who aren't as sick do clear the virus faster. It's going to take us I think another month before we are really confident about how long it is that people are infectious and when we can stop worrying about them.
1: You, of course, worked through SARS, as I did. Um, You became infected and had to self-quarantine. So you're probably the most knowledgeable person who's been in self-quarantine in the entire country. What are your tips on an effective self-quarantine, assuming that it's effective?
2: Probably the best advice for people who are having to tolerate this is, is just that recognition that it's going to be over. You know, it is miserable for lots of people. Anything you can do with communication is going to make things better. But it's, it's I think, holding on to the fact that when you get to day 14, that's going to be it. and uh, And you can move on with your life. And at the moment, those 14 days probably look like forever. But three years from now, you'll kind of have
1: forgotten that you had to go through that but self quarantine you know it seems to most canadians as as if it's a fairly extreme measure but is it is it is it something that that you could see becoming a new normal
2: no i don't think we're i, I don't think we're talking about self quarantine i am hoping that this outbreak will move us along a path of Better hand hygiene um, and and coping with fewer people coming to work sick because I think that will help us with influenza and respiratory viruses in general. Um, I don't think honestly that we're talking about self quarantine even for the full duration of this outbreak. I think when there's enough activity, um, then quarantining yourself when you are not ill is going to become not sensible. It's really going to be trying to focus on. If you have any symptoms, you need to stay home until you get better.
1: But that's exactly what some employers are asking their employees to do if they've if they've returned from a hot spot, uh, but uh, but they're completely asymptomatic themselves. They're actually asking them to self quarantine for two weeks.
2: Again, this about both the science and the perception of the, of the differential risk in people who have traveled and people who have not traveled. If you have traveled to Tehran. Um, The truth is we don't know what your risk of infection is, right? Because we're not getting good numbers out of Iran. They're clearly struggling with what's going on. And so I think you can make a case that that person may be at substantially higher risk. And particularly if they're they're working with frail elderly people, if you're working in a nursing home where an outbreak is going to be catastrophic, not unreasonable to ask people to self-quarantine or not to be at work potentially exposing very frail people. Things are changing so quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, it's A, hard to know what the right decision is and B, the right decision today and the right decision tomorrow might be two different things
0: Hi, I'm Damon Fairless, host of Hunting Warhead from CBC Podcasts and the Norwegian newspaper VG Hunting Warhead follows a global team of police and journalists as they attempt to dismantle a massive network of predators on the dark web. Winner of the grand prize for best investigative reporting at the New York festivals and recommended by The Guardian, Vulture, and The Globe and Mail, you can find Hunting Warhead on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The next question is related to what we've just been talking about, because I think I think the answer depends on local circumstances, uh, local outbreaks of, of COVID-19. But, you know, we're seeing large gatherings, concerts, conferences, sporting events being cancelled. You know, there's talk about some major league sports uh, uh, venues being empty uh, when games are played. Stanford and the University of Washington have cancelled in-person lectures. So has Harvard. Is that the right way to go about slowing down the spread of this virus?
2: That's a really interesting question, and I I think the answer is we're going to know afterwards. I don't think we have enough information to be really confident about which measures are most important and how effective they are. And so people are trying to make decisions, I think, based on what can we reasonably do? That's least invasive. There is no question that we want to keep the spread of this virus slowed down because it, without interventions, it will likely overwhelm our healthcare systems. And we would like to be able to take care of patients. So slowing it down is good. But again, it's this balancing act. You need to think about what can we let go. That's n- not critical or less critical. And you know everybody's got a different opinion about that.
1: We were talking about the healthcare system and this question is of particular interest to me as an emergency physician. People feel ill and their first instinct is to go to the emergency department. Physicians and nurses who work there have been saying privately that they think that the ER is the last place people should go if they think they have COVID-19. What do you think?
2: At the moment, we have been working on containment and slowing the spread. And while cases are imported from elsewhere, um, we want to recognize those cases, we want to test them, we want to get people into isolation. And so the emergency department is definitely not the ideal place for doing that, but it's the place we have. Um, And so we're living at the moment with the place we have. Once this becomes a community spread virus, then we're going to change our approach and we're gonna be saying to people, I know how badly you want to know whether or not you have COVID-19. We're all going to want to know if we get sick, whether we have COVID-19. But we just can't do that many tests. In fact,
1: people are being directed to the emergency department by their employers saying that they need a test that proves they don't have COVID-19.
2: Yes. And I think the pressure on our emergency department is probably going to get worse before it gets better. And we really need to work on consistent and careful messaging about you know, when you need to use the healthcare system.
1: So where should you go if you have symptoms, fever, coughing, difficulty breathing? Who should you call?
2: Well, so I think if you have difficulty breathing, that you, you need to see a medical professional. And if you can get into your family doc, fine. If you cannot get into your family doc, I think if you're short of breath, you need to go to the emergency department. You, you can't avoid that. The relevant question is, what do you do if you just have a fever and a cough? If you have an upper respiratory infection, even if it's influenza-like illness and you've got a fever for the first day or two, what you would normally do is, you know, stay home, eat soup, go for sympathy from your spouse, you know, and and get on with life, and that is not different, right? Wait till you're feeling better and don't worry about it. It's only if you are sick enough that you need to see a doctor, that you need to end up either in the office uh, or in the emergency department. And, and the triggers for that should not be any
1: different than they usually are. Should you call public health?
2: The distinction at the moment is... When is this when is this running?
1: Now. Today, tomorrow.
2: <laughs> okay. All right. so, so the distinction is... If you come from one of the list of countries where that, that are designated at risk, if you have been in Iran or South Korea or China in the last 14 days, if you've had known exposure to someone with COVID-19, then if you get sick before you see your doctor or before you go to the emergency department, then you should call because people need to know ahead of time um, that you are at greater risk than the rest of the population of having COVID-19. If people have a little bit of warning, then they can be more prepared for you and make sure that the right things get done in the right order and, and people aren't exposed.
1: Some hospitals are already starting to experiment with other ways of assessing people, for instance, having the ambulance bay be the place that they've, they've turned into a, a COVID-19 uh, assessment center. Yes. Uh, kiosks, you know, where you can drive through and, uh, and uh, we've seen them working in other countries. So, so isn't that something we should start to be thinking about now?
2: Yeah, we definitely should. Because, when, you know, when this happens, even if people are going to the emergency department at the right time – there's still going to be a lot more people than usual going to the emergency department. So setting up those clinics and kiosks is, it's it's in part about managing people who are worried, who maybe don't need to be there. But it's going to be in part because there will be more people who do need emergency departments. I expect most hospitals are working on systems for being able to increase the number of emergency patients they can take care of.
1: That's the emergency department. Um, what about the surge in COVID-19 cases in the rest of the hospital, the general- General medical floors and, in particular, the intensive care unit. We don't have enough ventilators, do we?
2: It's it's the intensive care units that are it's it's intensive care unit beds and Mm -hmm. ventilators um, that are the real challenge for Canada because we don't run with a lot of spares of either. That's the reason why we're going to be working so hard at spreading this out um, because there is no question that, like Italy and Iran now, um, it doesn't take a lot. To really stretch our our ICU and and ventilatory capacity, and there's some things we can do to mitigate that. And obviously, everybody's working on it. But one of the really important things is that we try to stretch this out and slow down the transmission, so that we 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 can maintain care for patients through this.
1: And a program note: We're going to tackle that on White Coat Black Art uh, very shortly. Um, Here's another question that we had about COVID 19. The listener asked if, if COVID 19 can compromise your immune system and make you more vulnerable to other uh, causes of pneumonia.
2: No, not, not as far as we know, and almost certainly not. There's only one virus that does that, measles. Well recognized that after you have a measles infection, your immune system is compromised, but it's never been described with other viruses, and there's no reason to think that that would happen with this virus.
1: So, I mean, it's good for people to get their Prevnar, their pneumococcal vaccine, but it's not going to protect you from the secondary complications of, uh, of COVID-19.
2: Now, well, A, it's always good to get your vaccines. B, if you get your vaccines, that might protect you from needing to be hospitalized. Hospitalized for one of those things, and exposing yourself in the hospital for COVID nineteen. Ah. So this, and anytime you have an outbreak, and we're going to have trouble with care, it's another good reason to protect yourself from being admitted to hospital. So yes, it's a really good time to go and get your vaccines.
1: Um, here's here's one that that I think you and I both know the answer to this, but but it's a good question to ask. There's lots of headlines about flu versus coronavirus, which is deadlier, COVID nineteen or in, or seasonal flu.
2: Uh, Almost certainly COVID-19 is going to be worse than seasonal
1: flu. So how come so many more people die of seasonal flu than COVID-19 so far?
2: Because we're at the beginning of the outbreak. So seasonal flu is a disease of semi-immune people, right? All of us, all of us have had flu before that gives us some protection. And a lot of us have been vaccinated, which gives us even more protection. In adults, somewhere between 8 and 10% of adults get influenza every year. Um, and the case fatality rate, if you get it, as an adult, is about 0.1%. Um, we don't know what the population attack rate of COVID nineteen is going to be. You know, mm. the, the the best case scenario for the next two months is a board wave because summer is coming and respiratory virus. You know, hopefully this virus behaves like other respiratory viruses, so that it wanes, doesn't transmit it well in the summer, in and the so we will get a yeah. break before the fall. I, that that's that's just hope. Okay, that's not based on evidence. That's just hope it could be that the attack rate is going to be 40 or 50%. So now that's like four times more than seasonal flu. And the the lowest estimates of case fatality in adults are probably 0.3%. So that's three times as bad as seasonal flu. So multiply the three by four, we're talking about 12 times. Now, it may not be anything like that bad, but it's not going to be as good as a regular flu season. It's going to be worse than that.
1: So when I asked you that question, that was the first time you had a serious look on your face, the fatality rate. You're worried about that.
2: I, I think I, I think this outbreak is going to be very hard in our health care system for for individual people living in the community, the great majority of people are not going to get seriously ill with this. We will get over this. life will go on. but I think in our health care system it 's going to be a really tough time because we are we are going to need to um, surge to capacities that we have not had to do before, um, and it's going to be—it's I, 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 going to be catastrophic, I think, in some of our long-term care facilities for, for frail elderly people. It, this is going to be really hard.
1: Do you think that there's a way to protect them, or? Is this inevitable that that's going to happen, or is there a way to avoid that?
2: So I, th- I think there are things we can do that reduce the risk of outbreaks in long-term care facilities, and I think we need to be working at all of them. I'm hopeful, I I think the data so far from China suggests that the drugs we've been using for treatment have not been working, Um, but I'm not sure that all of the data is in yet. And just because a drug does not work for treatment doesn't mean it doesn't work for prophylaxis. So think of flu drugs, right? They're not very good for treatment but they work fine for prophylaxis in nursing home outbreaks. So I'm hoping that we will be able to find medication that you can use the same way we use Tamiflu in nursing home outbreaks that will protect nursing homes. So I think there are some things we can do, um, but they're not certainties.
1: Is there a realistic hope of, of buying time, slowing things down long enough for a vaccine?
2: No, I don't think so. Well, I, when we get a vaccine, it's going to be good, but I I think it's – unrealistic to think that we can deliver a vaccine in less than 18 months, maybe maybe a year if some vaccine turns out to be like miraculously good. And, and, and certainly everybody's trying. In most of the world, the first wave of this will have been through uh, maybe the second wave before we have a vaccine that's available.
1: So your best advice to people listening to us right now is?
2: You know, You need to maintain as close to normal a lifestyle as you can. You need to recognize that disruptions are coming. I think each of us needs to be thinking about what we can do that's going to make life better for all Canadians getting through this. So, you know, this is the boring stuff. Okay, wash your hands, stay home when you're sick. And, you know... Generally, when public health people ask you to do things, or when anybody talks to you about preventive things like recycling, there's a tendency to roll your eyes. So I have two pleas for people, okay? The first of them is, just for the next three months, don't roll your eyes, do it. Um, And the second one is, I I was watching the ads from Come From Away last night, and you know, if we could all behave like the people in Gander on 9-11 for the next six months, that would be really helpful.
1: And don't don't wear masks if you don't need them.
2: Don't wear masks if you don't need them.
1: I'm sure we have many more questions. We'll come back to you at some point. But uh, thank you for squeezing us in. I know you've got another place to go to now.
2: Pleasure to talk to you.
1: Pleasure to talk to you, too. Dr. Allison McGear was with me in our Toronto studio. She's a medical microbiologist and a specialist in infectious diseases. She advises the province of Ontario and the federal government on emerging infectious diseases, including coronaviruses. So here's your dose of smart advice on COVID-19. And for that matter, other emerging viruses that are sure to follow this one. The best way to protect yourself and people you care about from diseases like COVID-19 is to do the basics. Wash your hands frequently, cough into your elbow, and above all, stay away from work, the hospital, or nursing homes if you have fever, cough, and difficulty breathing. Oh, and keep up with the latest news. What's true today may not be true in a week or two. If you have questions for The Dose, tweet us. I'm at NightShiftMD, and you can also tweet at CBC CBCWhiteCoat. Just remember to use the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can also email us. Our address is thedose at cbc.ca. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. The Dose is produced by Nicole Ireland, Donna Dingwall, and me with digital support from Olivia Pasquarelli and Fabiola Carletti. Shout out to Alison Braudel, Managing Editor at CBC Radio, Arif Narani, the Executive Producer of CBC Podcasts, and Leslie Merklinger, CBC's Director of Audio Innovation. And one more thing, the dose wants you to be better informed about your health, but if you're looking for medical advice, see your health care provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose.
0: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.